Welcome to Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and based on their award-winning blog series. Support for this project is presented to the Barnum Museum from the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The Barnum Museum has a special treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to high society and royalty, as well as millions of ordinary people. Barnum's lively letters to friends, family members, and business associates reveal him more completely as a person at times struggling mightily to make the three-year tour a success, all the while directing the management of his American museum from afar. They also offer insights into Barnum as a husband, father, and nephew, and as a mentor to the child actor-entertainer whose popularity resulted in their meteoric rise to fame and fortune. In his mid-30s at the time, Barnum proved himself a tireless go-getter, calculating risk-taker, and astute entrepreneur decades before his name was attracting crowds to the greatest show on earth. These letters offer a window into the hard-scrabble era of show business, revealing how Barnum went about acquiring, hiring, and commissioning attractions, and promoting his museum and the General Tom Thumb Tour in Europe. Join us as we travel back in time to learn, through Barnum's own words, about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum. The laborer is worthy of his hire. In previous letters, we've gotten to know some of the key staff members of P.T. Barnum's team at the American Museum in New York, by piecing together details from the letters Barnum wrote in France. Learning about their responsibilities and gaining insights into their personalities, at least insofar as we can infer this from Barnum's correspondence, has been an intriguing process. Among these high-level employees were Fortis Hitchcock, the museum's manager, who had full decision-making authority while Barnum was away, Monsieur Guillaudot, the museum's naturalist, taxidermist, and director of exhibits, Professor Swift, who was in charge of the visual illusions and revamping the lecture hall and other parts of the museum, and C.D. Stewart, who was tasked with preparing a guidebook and was apparently good at writing promotional puffs. Thanks to another letter, we are discovering more about an employee in a less glorified, though still important, position, the ticket-taker and bookkeeper for the museum, one Francis Clarkson. The name Francis, spelled with an E, was mentioned in earlier letters in reference to a person leaving the museum, an incident that seemed to upset Barnum. Yet those letters gave no clue as to the role or identity of that individual. 
we wondered, was Francis a performer at the museum? And was Francis a man or woman? Finally, we have answers to these questions in a letter Barnum wrote to Mr. Francis W. Olmsted, a different Francis, the retired wealthy merchant whom the penniless Barnum had convinced back in December of 1841 to take a substantial risk on his ability to repay him for the purchase of the American museum business. Barnum bought the museum business, but Olmsted retained ownership of the building. Barnum's long letter, dated October 31, 1845, and written in Paris while he awaited the arrival of General Tom Thumb and his entourage, is full of information about that life-changing event. But his letter goes beyond a retelling of the facts of how he became the museum's proprietor. As Barnum related his misunderstanding regarding his female employee Francis's departure, he also shared with Olmsted a confession and a poignant personal story. Indeed, this letter is one among several in the copybook that reveal Barnum as an empathetic person and show us how the words and actions of family members and others unrelated shaped his own attitudes and actions concerning other people. And unlike many people, Barnum was willing to own up, on paper at least, to some of his errors in judgment. He began the letter to Olmsted, saying that he, Barnum, was a damned fool and could not feel at ease until he had made that confession in the first line of his letter. He wrote, I was most particularly a fool for interfering with Francis and Hitchcock, and I would not have done it if I had not supposed that he had perhaps offended her, and that she had thus lost what she considered a good situation, and that it would be pleasing to your feelings and beneficial to her to have a reconciliation brought about and have her come back to her five dollars per week. Barnum had misread the situation, as he later learned from Hitchcock, that there had been neither a disagreement nor offense given, rather that Francis had left of her own accord. Having heard from Olmsted on the matter as well, he learned that, were it not for the little extra profits of the bar, she had said she would prefer trying to get a living in some other way. Barnum feared he had taken a step that had resulted not only in Francis's departure, but also in upsetting Olmsted. He assured him that the necessity arose for removing the bar from the museum, and had I known what the result would be, I should have been the last person to have interfered. He went on to assure him, I am anxious to retain your friendship, and trust I shall always do so. It should be noted that Barnum did not owe Olmsted any money when he wrote this. He had, miraculously, he would say, succeeded in paying off his debt in the space of only about two years. But for Francis, the $5 a week, or $250 yearly salary, without extra income from the bar, was not enough. Barnum was surprised that she had not wanted to keep the job, for at the time he hired her, I knew then, as I now do, that there was and is 1,000 worthy honest women in the city of New York who would jump at the chance for $200 per year. He emphasized that he had chosen to retain Frances since she had been a loyal employee at the museum. I said to myself, this is a friend of Mr. Olmsted's. Mr. O has accommodated me, and though I am poor and liable to lose every shilling I possess, if I don't succeed, yet I must give the extra $50. And I did so. Describing the sacrifices he had made in order to pay off his debt as quickly as possible, eating meager daily dinners of bread in his office, and asking his wife to make do with $600 for the family's annual expenses, 
He added that, During this time, Frances had her $5 per week, and poor as I was, she had an extra present occasionally for the holidays. Now, suppose I had failed in that enterprise, purchasing the museum, what would have been the result to Frances? Why, I might have starved, but she would have received her $250 per year. Going on to explain that his concern for keeping Francis employed had contributed to a decision he regretted as cruel, which he related to Olmsted. When I had paid for the museum, I was no longer forced to keep Francis, but I chose to do so for two reasons, and the very first was to please you, to whom I felt and shall always feel grateful. Second, because she has always been faithful, and I felt a delicacy in discharging her although I knew she was receiving $1 per week more than I would have been obliged to pay others equally honest and faithful. Finally, my good feeling for her and her welfare, as well as my desire to please you, led me to do a cruel and foolishly ridiculous act, that is to say, the discharge of the albino lady. He went on to explain what he had done and what had led to his poor judgment. It was cruel, because the albino lady was poor and had strove hard to lay up a little at the museum. She paid me punctually all I demanded, and yet I let Davidson and others poison my ears till at last I did a cruel deed. I discharged her. It was foolish because she had really done no wrong and because she was truly a good and gratuitous attraction to the museum. I gave the bar to Francis for less than the albino was paying me, and thus lost some $50 per year or more by the operation, besides at least $200 more in the attraction of the albino lady. These were not the only reasons for Barnum's feeling of regret. The other was more personal. Because of keeping Francis in her job, he had failed to assist his impoverished sister in the way that would have helped her most, employing her. She, having borne the responsibility for the care of her consumptive husband for several years, as well as their young child, had been reduced to poverty. At one point, she pawned a valuable watch just to buy bread. When her husband passed away, there was no money to pay for the funeral, nor for proper clothing. During those terrible years of deprivation, she had never asked her brother for help. It was an uncle, probably Allenson Taylor, who had alerted Barnum to her distress when the husband had died six months ago. Barnum responded right away by sending her money. His sister wrote back a letter overflowing with gratitude and said that she would now be able to put her needle skills to work as a tailoress and earn $3 per week, though she would welcome an opportunity for a better-paying job. As Barnum told Olmsted, If there was a chance for her to earn more in the museum... She would have been very thankful for the situation. Barnum characterized his sister as intelligent, young, healthy, and competent. Yet he had declined to employ her and instead offered to keep a roof over her head by living with his own family. His reasoning at the time was that, I supposed that Francis considered it a privilege to retain her situation, and so I wrote to my sister that I could not give her that situation but she might go and board gratis with my family, and thus save her $3 per week to clothe herself and child. She is now boarding with my family, and would feel it a great privilege to have Francis's situation with her wages. He summed up his case for his actions concerning Francis by declaring to Olmsted, My only excuse for this long letter 
is that I have tried to show you that I am governed by reason and justice in this matter, and hoping, if I showed you this, that you would acquit me of all blame in the matter. If justice or reason demanded an increase of wages for my friend Miss Frances Clarkson, she should have it. But as I feel that she is, and always has been getting, to say the least, all that she earns, I cannot consent to augment her salary. She is honest and faithful, and has respect, and for this reason I have given her the preference. But when the situation ceased to be desirable, there are those of my own blood who are poor and deserving, and who would be glad to have it. And we must not forget that charity begins at home. Concluding with words that are particularly relevant today, as so many businesses struggle to survive in our uncertain economy, Barnum avowed, I expect often, within the next five years, to see that museum lose money. Indeed, it's a miracle that it has not already done so. And I hold myself ready to sustain and pay any and all of such losses. And I shall not expect, in that case, to cut down the salaries of those employed there. The laborer is worthy of his hire, but he who would manage successfully must look to the dark side of the picture occasionally. And while he meets full justice to all whom he employs, he must also see that their demands are not so great as to hazard the success of the enterprise. A heart to feel for others more. On October 31st, 1845, P.T. Barnum was planted at his writing desk in the hotel or apartment where he was staying in Paris, awaiting General Tom Thumb's arrival from Lyon in mid-November. Perhaps the day was rainy and cold, not fit to be out and about, for Barnum penned seven or eight letters that day, filling 28 pages in his copybook. The last of those letters was to Charity, composed after all the business correspondence was done, as well as a letter to Oliver Taylor, a friend and relative in need, to whom he had given $1,000. Beginning the epistle with a reference to the possible home purchase in Bridgeport that had been top of mind and worrying him greatly, only a few days before, Barnum wrote, My dear wife, I wrote you by this steamer from London, but have since received the letter which you wrote in New York, and therefore see that all my advice about the house was useless, as you have given it up and I think very wisely. We must be content with our present house in Bridgeport till next fall or summer, and perhaps till a year from next spring. Keep cool, and we shall save enough in interest money next year to buy all our furniture. The house Charity had wanted to buy might have set them back $14,000, $2,000 more than Barnum had paid for the American Museum, unless she had been willing to bargain, which Barnum doubted she would do. He wished she would wait until he returned from Europe, and from this letter we learn that she had either complied with his wishes or decided independently that the house would not suit her after all. With relief and curiosity, Barnum inquired about a smaller sum she had requested from Fortis Hitchcock, this having been reported to him by the American Museum manager. My dear, how happens it that you want $500 from Hitchcock? It must be that he never paid you the money he borrowed from you when you first arrived, did he? Understand me, I am not offended to have you spend all the money which you please do, so that you do it judiciously. Still, I like to know how the money affairs stand, and I shall not be sorry if you have carried out the plan which you propose to adopt, namely, to keep an account of the money you pay out. 
To be sure, $500 was quite a substantial amount when we recall that Barnum had asked Charity to make due with $600 per year for the family's expenses in 1842 and 1843. The household's sacrifice had helped him repay his debt for the purchase of the American Museum far more rapidly than otherwise. Perhaps Charity felt justified in purchasing whatever she wished now that they were wealthy and no longer under threat of being left penniless by her husband's risky investment. After more than 15 years of marriage, she must have been quite familiar with her husband's proclivity for risk-taking and his thirst for success. With Hitchcock handling both the family and business finances in Barnum's absence, Barnum was elated to learn that Charity had been friendly to his manager in their recent contacts. He had already been trying to smooth over hard feelings between his uncle Allenson Taylor and Hitchcock, and it appears he had been on a similar mission to improve the relationship between Hitchcock and Charity. Barnum wrote to his wife, I was very much pleased in getting Hitchcock's last letter. I wrote you once before that a kind word from you would have good effect on him, and so it has proved, for he has written across the Atlantic as follows. I am very happy to say that Mrs. Barnum has been to the museum twice, both Monday and Tuesday, and appeared very kind and friendly, and I pray God it may continue, especially for your sake, and hope that many, very many happy days are in store for you in the bosom of your family, for I know that no man living would enjoy domestic tranquility and felicity more than you. In case Charity needed further convincing that Hitchcock was the exceptional person Barnum knew him to be, he continued in the letter, Hitchcock wrote those four lines from the very fullness and bottom of his heart, and as you now see how easy it is to make him happy, I hope you will continue to do so, for there was never a more honest, faithful, nor better-hearted fellow on earth. Not one in ten thousand could have managed my business so well as he has, and no bulldog ever guarded property closer than he guards my money. As far as the family's health, the news that dear little Helen is once more fat and hearty was music to her father's ears. Helen was the Barnum's second child, born in 1840, and seems to have had frequent bouts with throat-related illnesses, including a case of whooping cough. At one point during the summer, Barnum greatly feared receiving the same tragic news he'd learned in March of 1844 when Frances, the Barnum's third child, had passed away shortly before her second birthday. That Helen was a lively little girl seems clear in other letters, and in this one Barnum reported to Charity, Mr. Hitchcock says I may well be proud of her, for she is pretty as a pink. She sent me a kiss by Mr. Hitchcock. Kiss her for me, and send my love to Carolyn. Carolyn, the eldest daughter, was nearly twelve and a half years old at the time of this letter. Her father was determined that she attend a boarding school, one that would require her to speak and read French for much of the day. This letter suggests that the school they had chosen for Carolyn to begin her formal education was not in New York City, nor close to Bridgeport, Connecticut, for Barnum asked Charity to write and tell her we will come on next summer and see her, and I will come as soon as I get home this winter. Write to Carolyn often and give her good advice. She is now the right age to have it do her good. How funny this sounds, when today most people would say that parental advice to a child entering her teens is practically guaranteed to be ignored. Few words in the letter are devoted to Charity's health, and this is quite curious. Barnum wrote only that he was sorry your health is not better before telling her of his own. At that point, the end of October, 
Charity would have been about to start her sixth month of pregnancy. Had she not communicated her condition to her husband in her most recent letter to him? Was the subject too delicate to put in writing, even to one's spouse? Considering Barnum's deep concern for the health of his five-year-old, it is hard to believe he would not have been excited and somewhat worried about his wife's pregnancy had he known of it. Yet Barnum's oft-changing decisions on the date when he expected to return to America seemed to be based only on the profitability, or lack thereof, of General Tom Thumb's performances and give no indication of anticipating the birth of a child. As far as Barnum's current state of health, we get various reports. To Hitchcock, he wrote on the same day that my health is very much better, while also informing Oliver Taylor, my health has been miserable and is not first-rate now, but I play the granny some and take care of myself, so that I hope nature, assisted by my good habits, for they are good, will triumph at last. He gave Charity a more upbeat report, telling her, My health is very good. I could feel the fat coming onto my bones while I was in London, partaking of the roast beef and ale. I have not smoked for a month, nor shall not again soon, as I am sure it made me poor in health. I have never snuffed since you left. So, you see, I am becoming a very promising and moral young gentleman. The Barnum household also included another family member at this time, Barnum's sister Cordelia, whom we learned from a previous letter, had been reduced to extreme poverty during her husband's long battle with tuberculosis and was struggling to support their very young child. Her dire situation only became known to Barnum after the death of Cordelia's husband, when an uncle informed him. Barnum sent his sister money and suggested that she board with his family so that she could save her meager earnings as a tailoress. That she accepted her brother's offer is confirmed in the October 31st letter to Charity, for Barnum suggests to his wife, let Cordelia answer this if you can't. In addition to helping his sister, Barnum felt responsible for helping out another relative, Oliver Taylor, who'd found himself in need of money. Barnum's perspective on assisting people in their times of need is revealed in his letters, reflecting back on times when he himself had struggled. For his acts of kindness, he credits his uncle Allenson Taylor, whose own actions in that regard had impressed him and influenced him to be charitable. Barnum shared this story from his younger days in a multi-part letter to Hitchcock. As for Allenson Taylor, he has peculiarities which I by no means admire. Still, he is good at heart, and he has been a disappointed and broken-spirited man. I once remember that while he was in the heyday of success with the land speculation, I was traveling with a show in Tennessee and Alabama. Our folks heard that I had bursted up and had no money to get home on. Allenson Taylor believed it, and wrote to me telling me to draw on him to any amount necessary to pay my liabilities at the South and my expenses home, and he would pay the whole with pleasure. The report was false, but he believed it, and his kind offer showed that he had a heart to feel for others more, and I shall never forget it, although I never before repeated the circumstance to him or any other person. Hard Feelings About Soft Soap Let's return to France via letters from Barnum to Sherwood Stratton, written between late October and early November of 1845. In contrast to the tenderness and empathy Barnum expressed in several of his letters home, he did not hold back when he felt someone had crossed the line, 
and in this copybook of letters, correspondence with Sherwood Stratton reveals a relationship that was often strained and contentious. In particular, the tone of the letters to Stratton, written between late October and early November of 1845, tells us that Stratton had crossed the line and really provoked him. He responded with thinly-veiled anger, trying to make his points crystal clear yet still keep their partnership intact. Fair warning, prepare for angry words, though offset by interesting comments on advertising. Stratton, you may recall, was the father of seven-year-old Charles Stratton, better known as General Tom Thumb. He and his wife Cynthia accompanied their son on the three-year European tour, which commenced in January of 1844, only a year after Charles's launch in New York City had brought incredible success. As we learn in the correspondence, Mr. Stratton had advanced from the weekly salary arrangement he'd had at the American Museum to a business partnership with Barnum. Stratton's fortunes soon skyrocketed, with young Charles's highly profitable tour through the British Isles and nonstop engagements in London. There is little doubt this venture wet Sherwood Stratton's appetite for money-making, though he did not possess the intellect, experience, work ethic, and general wherewithal that Barnum did, and could not have been successful without him. From Barnum's point of view, Stratton could be a difficult and unreasonable person who often tried his patience, the letters suggest he coped with it by trying to keep him in good humor, jokingly addressing him as Major Stratton, providing him with direction and advice, while also acknowledging Stratton's freedom to make decisions as a partner in their venture. The purpose of most letters was to give Stratton the information he would need about hotels, meals, theaters, halls, printers, the posting of broadsides, local rules and customs, and so forth. Barnum, being a week to ten days ahead of the entourage, was scouting opportunities, making arrangements, and negotiating tax and profit percentages. The latest letters also contain advice about selling most or all of their vehicles, the carriages and wagons, before leaving Lyon and heading to Paris. Barnum sought advice before making his recommendations, but left it up to Stratton, in consultation with Mr. Sherman, to determine the best plan of action. At times, he may have steeled himself to trust Stratton's judgment, though with the distance between them he had little choice in many matters. One thing Barnum was firm about, however, that their itinerary performing in the French country towns should be cut short, since little to no profit was to be made. Parisians, on the other hand, would be liberal if the tour's previous success in that city was any indication. From Paris, they would return to London for the Christmas season, and perhaps stay longer far more certain of making money. That Stratton had been suspicious about Barnum's quick trip to London in late October clearly rankled Barnum, who had gone with a dual purpose, partly on business for his American museum and partly to make arrangements for Tom Thumb's exhibition at Egyptian Hall and Christmas pantomime performances. In a November 3rd letter, Barnum responded to Stratton's, in which he had claimed that Barnum was soft-soaping him in other words, persuading him to do things through flattery, while not being transparent about serving his own interests. Indignant at the accusation, as well as Stratton's seemingly sarcastic or mean-spirited comments about his trembling writing hand, Barnum fired off a three-page letter. He called it a discourse or sermon on soft-soaping, and stated, I am in earnest in what I am now going to write so I expect you will find no soft soap in this sermon. Dividing the discourse into three headings, 
What reason have I for wishing to soft soap you? Did I ever soft soap you? And lastly, the reason why you think I have used soft soap. Barnum proceeded to explain why a person would want to soft soap another, and that he could see no reason why he would have wished to deceive or take advantage of Stratton to further his own interests. As a proof of this, I hereby agree to start with you all bag and baggage in the first ship for New York after we have finished in Paris, if you and your wife prefer it. So you have only to say the word. Thus you see that if we stay in England, Ireland, and Scotland, it will be as much to accommodate you as me. Barnum's good faith offer cleverly turned the tables on Stratton, who would surely want to benefit from the engagements Barnum had arranged in London, and likely wished to make even more money with another tour of the British Isles. Consulting the copybook to reread Barnum's recent communication to Stratton, it was evident that Barnum was perplexed as to what Stratton might have construed as an attempt at soft soap. Perhaps you think there was soft soap in what I said about starting a museum with you in America. To prove that I was in earnest, I am ready to sign writings with you to that effect the first day we meet. I don't care one sou, that's a small French coin, either way, whether we do it or not. I am sure you would not do it unless you expected to make money by it, nor wouldn't I. So there was no soft soap under that hat. Barnum then went on to substantiate his claim that he had never soft-soaped Stratton, firmly stating, I believe I have always fulfilled my promises to you, and that I have never held our hopes of success which you have not fully realized. When we began together last year, I did not promise what you should make, but I told you that I believed you would be worth $20,000 at the end of the year. Was I mistaken in my belief? And do you think you would have had more money now than you have now got if you had not arranged with me? Incensed by Stratton's accusation, he further retorted, I insist that no man ever dealt more honorably with another than I have with you. I never worked so hard nor so faithfully for myself alone as I have for our firm, and therefore I confess that I do not like the suspicion that I am using deception with you. For that is the same thing as to suspect me of using soft soap. He then went on to say why he thought Stratton suspected him. I believe that you are jealous of my paying any attention to my business on the other side of the Atlantic, and that you fear that I do so at your expense. Now, if I had remained in Lyon or Paris till this time, of course my expenses of board would have been paid by the firm. But I received a letter from Hitchcock saying that Professor Swift was going to leave, and therefore I wanted another man, and something new for the holidays, and I sent to London and got them, and shipped them off. But all expenses of travel, board, etc. were paid out of my own pocket, so that you was a gainer rather than a loser by the business. Reminding Stratton about the financial arrangements they had had before embarking on the European tour, Barnum emphasized, You must remember that when I was exhibiting Tom Thumb on my own account, I was then also the owner of the museum, and that even then I found time to come to Paris and buy things for my museum, and I found time to engage other things and do other business for my museum, and that I did these things without neglecting the exhibition of Tom Thumb. You ought not, therefore, to expect me to attend more closely to the business now than I did when I was exhibiting him on my own book. In both cases, I did and do all that I knew how to do to help the success of his exhibition. Barnum had also concluded that there might be another reason for Stratton's accusation of soft-soaping, and that was in regard to his having taken on the tour's advertising. 
This had become necessary, so Barnum felt, while they were in France, but he assured Stratton that advertising was a task he disliked and that he would much prefer to hire someone better than himself to do it once they returned to England. He explained that, Long before I knew you, I knew that advertising, when it was well done, was the hardest and most unthankful portion of the business, and therefore in France I hated to try it, and first tried the experiment of having Sherman go ahead. Finding that he could not do it well, and that we could not get a person to do it well, I concluded much against my will to do it, and I have done it as well as I could. Many times, no doubt, I have missed it, but it has been through an ignorance of the language and the country and the rascality of its inhabitants, for in all cases I have tried to do it as well as I knew how. And when a man does his best, he does not like to be suspected of soft soap. At least, I do not. His last point to Stratton in regard to advertising and how their partnership roles should continue was thus. If we exhibit in England, it will not be difficult to find a man to advertise and to prove to you that I don't crave the job. I propose that if we exhibit there, each of us shall do the same portion of the business that we used to do before we came to France, and that we hire a man to advertise as we did then. For, truth to say, I can find no fun in advertising, and I would not continue to do it for an extra salary of $1,000 per month, nor I will not if it is possible to find a competent person to do it. Barnum concluded the letter he called a sermon on soft soaping by simply writing, Amen. Barnum's aversion to advertising may come as a surprise, since today many people think of Barnum as the master of promotion. Perhaps the key to understanding his perspective is in his comment that it was both hard to do well and thankless, and that there were others more knowledgeable and adept than himself when it came to that type of work. Hiring people who were highly competent was thus his strategy. Jumping ahead to the future, when Barnum's greatest show on earth was attracting and astonishing crowds like no other, we know that he'd found an advertising genius like no other in Richard F. Toddy Hamilton. According to Hamilton biographer Joe Dobrow, Hamilton was said to have generated two million words of promotional copy a year, and memorized and created more adjectives than anyone else of his time. We find a superabundance of these extraordinary words and hyperbolic phrases in the broadsides and handbills promoting Barnum's Circus. They are certainly the place to look for soft soap. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. This podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum. All episodes are based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre, curator of the Barnum Museum. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pino, and narration by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our chief operations officer. Please visit our website at www.barnum-museum.org to learn more about the museum. Don't forget to connect with us on social media and visit the Barnum Museum's YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our fascinating collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures in Europe with P.T. Barnum.